So Isaiah 65, verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live and others live in them, or plant and eat others. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands, and they will not labour in vain. Nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They will they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And now we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 34. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the, at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace, to me, was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed." But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can, some, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father and all he, all he has destroyed, all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who puts everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the, de- if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Hi, everyone. Really good to be with you. Um, if you're here for the first time, my name's Mike. I'm one of the ministers here at St. Matt's. Great to be with you at Uni Church. Welcome. Uh, it'd be really, really helpful if you keep 1 Corinthians 15 open in front of you as we work our way through it together. That would be super helpful for you and for me. Now, earlier we said the Apostles' Creed. I love saying the Apostles' Creed. It reminds us of what is core and fundamental to the Christian faith. I love saying this bit about Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. Now, churches all around the world say those words. Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodist churches. And when we say those words here this evening, we join with Christians all around the world and all throughout history in professing our Christian faith. And you know who would have loved saying those words with us this evening if they were here with us? The Corinthians. They absolutely believed the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Paul says in the opening verses. Just jump in with me back into verse 3. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all, uh, all the apostles and last of all he appeared to me. So Paul has passed on to them this basic summary of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and Paul's point is, I know that you Corinthians believe this about Jesus. You can tell that Paul's point is, I know that you Corinthians believe that Jesus died and rose because he introduces this little gospel summary in verse 1 and he wraps it up in verse 11 by saying, hey guys, I know that you believe this. See verse 1? He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received. Now, look at this. And on which you have taken your stand. So he's saying, you guys in Corinth, I know you've taken your stand on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, look at verse 11. This is how he wraps up his little gospel summary. He says, whether then it's I or they, meaning whether it's me, Paul, or one of them, the other apostles that taught you this, This is what we preach, and look at this, and this is what you believed. So Paul is saying, guys, I know that you believe that Jesus died and that Jesus rose. And particularly, Paul is really saying, look, I know you believe that Jesus rose. Because that little gospel summary from verse 3 all the way down to verse 8, there's only half a verse on the death of Jesus. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried. There it is, half a verse. 13 words in total on the death and the burial. 81 words on the resurrection and the appearances. That he was raised on the third day, that he appeared to this person, to that person, to these guys, then to me. You see the emphasis on the resurrection. This opening section, Paul is saying to them, look, I know that you believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Now, no doubt the Corinthians, by the time they get to verse 11, are saying, yeah, duh, of course we believe Jesus physically rose from the dead. That's what Christians believe, Paul. At which point Paul says, aha, so why don't you believe that we will physically rise too? So you have a look at verse 12. This is where he's leading up to. He says, but if it is preached, and you guys believe, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, when some in Corinth are saying there's no resurrection of the dead, they don't mean that Jesus didn't physically rise. Paul's quite clear that they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Rather, it seems what they're saying is that we Christians won't physically rise from the dead. We read all of chapter 15, they still believe in life after death. They just believe that our souls or our spirits go up to heaven while our physical bodies stay in the grave. Now, that seems like a pretty normal Christian belief, right? I mean, I constantly meet Christians who think that when we die, our physical bodies go into the ground and that our souls or spirit go to heaven for all eternity. And that's what I thought for many years. But Paul thinks that that idea is so off the mark that it's almost heresy. What's going on here? Well, what's happening in Corinth makes a little bit more sense when we realise that there is likely to be a clash of worldviews going on in Corinth. Uh, The Jewish worldview of life after death 
clashing with the Greek view. The Jewish view was that at the end of time, God would physically remake this whole world. We saw that read to us in these words of Isaiah 65. God says, I will create new heavens and a new earth, so a whole new physical earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. So a whole new physical creation at the end of time. And from places in the Old Testament, like Daniel chapter 12, God would physically raise his people from the dead to live in that new creation. So here's Daniel chapter 12, looking forward to the end of things. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So let's put this Old Testament view of the world on a timeline. Uh, God created the world, but Adam sins and ruins uh, creation. And the Old Testament, though, it looked forward to the last day when God would remake the physical creation, like Isaiah 65, and would raise his people to new physical life, Daniel chapter 12. And so the Jewish view of eternity was a physical world where God raised his people back to physical life. And by the way, that, is, that's, that explains Martha's words to Jesus uh, when Lazarus dies. Do you remember how Jesus comforts her? And he says to her, don't worry, your brother will rise again. And her response is, I know he'll rise again on the resurrection on the last day. Because the Jewish view, which was informed by the Old Testament, was that at the end of time, God remakes this physical world and raises his people physically for all eternity. But if that's the view of the Old Testament, how come the Christians in Corinth don't believe that? And the answer, I think, is that Corinth is in Greece. And the Greek worldview was that if there was a life after death, it certainly would not be physical. Because in Greek thought, the physical world was polluted and dirty and that to be saved would mean escaping from this physical world. So in Greek thought, life after death would be spiritual. Our souls or our spirits would escape this physical world to go and be perfected and at peace. And so it seems that the Christians in Corinth has, has absorbed that cultural view of life after death being this kind of spiritual uh, ghostly soul experience. And that's why some in Corinth are saying, oh sure, Jesus physically rose from the dead, but we're not going to physically rise. No, our souls will just go to heaven and our bodies will stay in the grave. They've been influenced by their culture's view of life after death. And how easy for that to happen to us as well. The last survey that I read on this said that most Aussies believe in a life after death. But that's a spiritual life, not a physical one. We see this view at funerals when we hear things like they're looking down on us or they're in a better place. We see it in cartoons or video games when the character dies and their skeleton kind of grows angel wings and flies up to heaven but their body remains here. 
Like the Corinthians, we are surrounded by a cultural view of life after death being a spiritual existence or a spiritual experience. So how easy then, just like the Corinthians, to lose sight that God's people have had a hope for eternal life that has never actually been a spiritual eternity, but has always been hope for a physical, bodily eternity. Is that what you believe? Or do you kind of just picture heaven as this place that your soul goes to? Well, in verse 13 to 28, Paul helps us see the connection between Jesus' physical resurrection and our resurrection. There's two pictures in this section. Uh, The first picture to get into your mind is that of domino tiles falling one by one. Paul, in these verses, sets up a kind of logical game of dominoes. The first tile that he places down is the Corinthians' idea that God won't physically raise his people. Have a look at verse 13. Verse 13, he says, If there's no resurrection of the dead, so that's tile number one, here's tile number two, then not even Christ has been raised. That is, if God doesn't physically raise his people from the dead, then Jesus wasn't physically raised either because, well, Jesus was dead. To which the Corinthians might say, oh, that's probably still okay, right? Like, if Jesus doesn't physically rise from the dead, he still died for sin, so I'm going to be okay. But look at the next tile to fall in verse 14. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless... And so is your faith. If Jesus' body is still in the grave, then he's no different to anybody else, still suffering the penalty of death. If Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead, he's not Lord over death. And if he's not Lord over death, then, well, Jesus can't save me and he can't save you from death. Uh, Verse 17 puts it like this. If Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. We're lost. And if that's the case, the next tile to fall is in verse 19. Look at verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. And you can kind of imagine the Corinthians at this point going, whoa, Paul, settle down. Let's not be dramatic here. We still believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. We just don't think that we will physically rise, rather. Our souls or our spirits will go to heaven for all eternity. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is, if only our souls go to heaven and our bodies remain in the grave for all eternity, then death still wins. Because death has robbed me of something good that God gave me. If death still holds my physical body in the grave and will not let go of it, and Jesus can only manage to pry out my soul and get that to heaven, then Jesus has not conquered death. And death still claims a victory over God's people. And if that's the case, then Jesus is not Lord over death. And if he's not Lord over death, then I have no hope, and neither do any of us. It seems kind of harmless, doesn't it? to say that God won't physically raise us, but our souls will go to heaven. But Paul sets up this logical game of dominoes to show that that is an absolute disaster. There's a second picture here, and it's one of my favourite pictures in all of the Bible. 
It's the picture of the first fruit of a harvest. Have a look at verse 20. Have a look at this picture. Verse 20 says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Now, do you know what the first fruits of a harvest are? It's not a trick question. It's quite literally the first fruits of the harvest. So, in your minds, just imagine an orange orchard in the middle of winter. No oranges, it looks barren and lifeless and dead. And then comes spring and you see this, the first orange on the tree, one single orange. Now, that first fruit is a sign that the rest of the orchard is about to burst into life. Not long now until the rest of the oranges come. And Jesus is the first fruit, not of the orchard, but of the graveyard. He's the first of the dead to physically burst back to life. Jesus' physical resurrection is the first fruit of ours. So notice he's not the only fruit, the only one who will be physically raised back to life. He's the first. And just like the first fruit is a sign that the rest of the orchard will soon burst into life, the resurrection of Jesus is the sign that the rest of the graves around our world will one day burst into life. When? When is that going to happen? Well, verse 23 gives us the answer. Look at verse 23. But each in turn... Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. That is, when Christ comes, when he returns at the end of time, the rest of the oranges will burst forth. And so I think it's helpful to go back to our timeline at this point. Uh, God creates the world and Adam sins and the creation falls and the Old Testament looked forward to that last day when God would physically remake the world and raise his people to life and the New Testament fulfills that but instead of the last day, what we find is the last days. The resurrection of the dead has started with Jesus' resurrection. It's begun. But he's just the first fruit. The rest of the fruit... The rest of the resurrection, our resurrection, will happen when Jesus returns. The resurrection of the dead, it has started. It has started with Jesus and it now cannot be stopped. So to quote Gandalf, uh, things are now in motion that cannot be undone. Uh, Turns out Gandalf is a very good theologian of the resurrection. So can you see just how connected... Jesus' resurrection is to our resurrection. Jesus' resurrection and ours, they're actually part of the same event. They are inseparably welded together. And that's why the Corinthians can't say, oh sure, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but we won't physically rise, just our souls will go to heaven. Paul's point is, actually, no, you cannot have one without the other. And so if you look on screen, this is what Paul is saying to them. If God doesn't physically raise us, then he didn't physically raise Jesus. Because these two things are welded together. And that's why Paul does that dominoes thing. That's why Paul says, look, if God doesn't raise us at the end of time, then he didn't raise Jesus either, because these are part of the same event. 
So more positively, what Paul is saying to them is, look, you guys in Corinth, you know that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why you should know that God will physically raise us too, because you can't separate these things. That's the theology that is driving this passage. For Christians who are dead now, yeah, their souls or their spirits are with God in heaven while their physical bodies are in the ground, but that's only temporary. That's not the final state. That's not what eternity will be like. We await and they await the resurrection of our bodies into a whole new creation. And that's why the Apostles' Creed ends uh, with these beautiful words. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and here it is, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's us. Jesus' people, the rest of the fruit raised to life everlasting. Now, I think there's so much amazing application here. I really want to uh, talk to you about how great it is that we will have physical bodies for eternity. Physical bodies that can feel the warmth of the sun. Physical bodies that will enjoy the sensation of a gentle breeze in the new creation. Physical bodies that can hug That is so much better than our cultural notion of being bodiless souls for all eternity, like sitting on a cloud or whatever in heaven. Now, as much as I want to talk about that, how much greater it will be that for all eternity we will have physical bodies, uh, we're going to leave that for next week because the second half of chapter 15, which we get to next week, kind of goes in that direction. This week, we have to wrestle with the application that we're given in this passage. Did you notice the application of this in verse 34? Verse 34 says, Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. There you go. That's the application he draws from the resurrection. Stop sinning. It seems that the Corinthians' belief that their bodies would not rise has somehow given them a licence to sin with their bodies that they're treating their bodies a bit like a hire car that they don't keep. And that might actually explain some of the things that they've been doing with their bodies throughout the letter. Maybe this is why they've been getting drunk at the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. Maybe that's why they're doing other things with their bodies, like back in chapter 6. Have a look at this in chapter 6. This is really telling. Paul says to them, you say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, look at this, and God will destroy them both. In other words, they're saying... God will destroy the body and so do whatever you like with the body. But next verse, Paul starts to correct them. He says, The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now look at this. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he'll raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. So it seems like because some of them think that their body is just going to the grave and just become nothing over time, then, well, maybe it doesn't matter what we do with our physical bodies. Get drunk, sleep around, do drugs. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you like with your body because it's not going to heaven anyway. And Paul says, whoa, hang on. Slow down. What you do with your body really matters. It's not a hire car. God is going to raise it forever. Unichurch, what we do with our bodies and what we do to our bodies really matters. 
Getting drunk matters. Who we have sex with and how we have sex matters. Pornography matters. What we do with our bodies matters, for God will raise our bodies. Are there things that we are doing with our bodies that we need to hear God's word speak to us in verse 33 and say to us, come back to your senses and stop sinning because what we do with our bodies really matters. I think part of the heartbeat of um, chapter 15 is, is him saying to the Corinthians to live consistently with the belief that God physically raises us because the Corinthians weren't consistently believing or living it out that God raises us from the dead physically. And I'm sure you notice that weird verse about baptisms for the dead. Uh, I'm I actually not quite sure what was going on in Corinth. Um, I'm not quite sure what that verse is about, but it's really clear that what Paul is doing is he's, he's urging them to be consistent in both believing that God raises the dead and living that out in their lives now. And Paul gives them and us two paths to choose from for life. In this closing section, he gives us two ways to live. Did you notice the two ways to live? Uh, The first way is characterised by life now and death later. You can see that option partway through verse 32. So if you've got your Bibles there, just look at verse 32, partway through where he starts to say, if the dead are not raised, here's what he says. If the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So if the dead aren't raised, if there's no physical eternal life to come, then eat and drink and take drugs and do whatever with your body, for tomorrow we die and then we'll never have a body again. If there's no resurrection, then we need to experience every bodily joy now while we still have a body. And that is the way of life that our culture has chosen. The experience now, the holidays now, the sex now. Let us eat and drink now, for tomorrow we die. That is our culture's motto. In fact, our culture keeps coming up with different ways of expressing that. Ten years ago, it was YOLO. You only live once. That tattoo that I got on my back really dated pretty quickly. (laughs) You only live once, so you better do everything now. Then there was FOMO, the fear of missing out. You have limited opportunities in life to experience things, so you don't want to miss out. We have the term bucket list, the things that we really got to do before we kick the bucket and die and we've lost our chance to do them. Carpe diem, seize the day. Our culture is always saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We just Every 10 years, just keep coming up with a different way of saying it. But our culture is always saying to us, experience life now, because it's death later. And so experience as much as you can in this life. Have you bought into that? Have you bought into that way of thinking? It's very easy to buy into that view. Or even if you don't believe it intellectually, it's very easily done to functionally act in life as if that were true and that you've got to experience and do all these things before you die. But there's a second option and that option is death now and life later. That is death to always prioritising our bodily joys and comforts now. 
And that's the option that Paul has chosen in verse 30. Have a look at verse 30, at the way he has chosen to live. He says, As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yeah, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? So Paul faces death every day for Christ's glory. He dies to comfort and self every day. He doesn't let the pursuit of comfort and leisure get in the way of him glorifying Christ. And he does it cheerfully because he knows that he will be raised to eternal physical life. And so the Christian life is one of dying to sin and self now. But we can do that cheerfully because we know that our resurrected life is coming. It's death now and life later. Jesus put it like this, whoever wants to follow me must take up their cross. That's death now. But whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will find it. It's life later. And so when I'm tempted to sin in the pursuit of physical greed or comfort or leisure or pleasure or whatever, I can say to myself, actually, I don't need to pursue this. Because my resurrected life is coming and that life holds infinitely more joy and pleasure for me than whatever the best thing in my physical life will be here on earth. And that, that is so freeing. That is such a freeing way to live. Christians do not live by FOMO. For our best life is coming. Christians don't live by the motto of seize the day. Like Paul, we're to seize the death as we daily die to sin and to self. Christians do not have a do-or-die bucket approach to a bucket list because we know that our best experiences actually come after death, not before death. And that is such a freeing way to live life because the other option, the pattern of eat and drink now for tomorrow we die, is thoroughly enslaving because you are suddenly pressured into cramming every bit of beauty and joy into this life now and that is never satisfying because you know it doesn't last and let's be honest, it's actually just pretty average most of the time. So which of these two patterns is in your heart? How does your heart approach life? Has our culture convinced you to eat and drink now for tomorrow we die? And do we need to hear God's word in verse 33 say to us, don't be misled, bad company corrupts good character, come back to your senses and stop sinning? Or are you inconsistent? Do do you believe that, yes, we will be raised to eternal life, but actually you kind of functionally live like this life is all there is? Or do you need a reminder that what we do with our physical bodies really matters? I don't know uh, where God's word is pressing itself uh, into your heart. I know where it's pressing into mine, but I'm going to leave you just a moment now to think about God's word uh, in this passage and where his word is speaking into your life. I'm just going to give you 30 seconds to think about that and then I'll, I'll close in prayer.
The Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the resurrection of Jesus and for all of that means for us and particularly that it means that we will be raised too. Our Lord, help us hold on to that hope that we have of a physical resurrection into a new creation and help us to live out the implications of that in our life now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing.